You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Savage Arms. We all know that the human body comes in all different shapes and sizes. However, most firearms do not. That is why Savage Arms has rolled out their AccuFit system on the 110 platform. AccuFit uses interchangeable components that allow hunters to custom fit both comb height and the length of pull without taking their rifle to a gunsmith. In fact, the only tool you need is a Phillips head screwdriver. If you want to find out more information about the AccuFit customization system, visit savagearms.com. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Vortex Optics. Happy Hump Day, everybody, and welcome back to another episode. And for your entertainment, we have a really good episode today. We're going to be talking with Sam Soholt. Now, you may know Sam from Instagram and Facebook. He is a photographer. He's a videographer. He is a conservationist. He is a sportsman. He is a hunter. He is a waterfowler. He is an outdoorsman, period. And uh, this is just a, a straight up hunter profile podcast with uh, with Sam. Some awesome background. Some a lot of the stuff I didn't even know about him until he shared the stories uh, on this um, uh, on this podcast or on this episode today. So a really cool background and kind of a timeline from when he was a kid to where he at is at today, um, shooting. Uh, pictures, shooting film, uh, making short films, and uh, just loving life as an outdoorsman, man. So um, I've, I've wanted to have him on the, the, the podcast for a while now. And finally, our schedules clicked, and uh, here we are. So it's a really good episode today. Um, Iowa just got hammered with a bunch of snow, and um, I, I was going to go for a walk in the next couple days to see if I might be able to find some sheds and some beds, but I don't think that's going to happen now. I think that uh, we're going to wait a couple more weeks, um, but that's the thing is, there's just going to be more snow and more snow. I think there's in the next five days, there's two more significant snow events coming through the area here. So shed hunting might be put off. If anything, I think what I'm going to do is go to one of my farms with a whole bunch of corn and put out a trail camera and uh, over top of a big pile of corn and just take inventory that way and we'll we'll see what happens but uh, we got to do a commercial before we get into today's episode and that is with lone wolf now everywhere i go when it comes to whitetail hunting even uh even mule deer hunting uh this year i i had a couple sets where i was actually in a tree waiting for uh some mule deer to come by but i'll tell you this right now Anytime I do a running gun, I got a lone wolf with four sticks on my back. Typically, it's an assault. So a lone wolf assault with four sticks on my back. And that can get me in any tree that I need to be in, whether it's straight, whether it's crooked, uh, whether it's a big fat tree, whether it's a, a small tree. It allows me to not be in the you know in a straight up tree it allows me to be in the right tree not the right area but the right tree uh, because sometimes 10 yards can or five yards can make a huge difference whether you know there's a trail that runs behind you know behind uh, a bush or in front of the bush or whether or not you're within shooting range uh, or not so um, it's light it's made in America it's quiet 
And uh, once you break that learning curve of being a mobile hunter, it's almost like a, a third or fourth or whatever, a fifth appendage. And you can literally set up in five minutes, tear down in five minutes, and you're back to the truck. So it's just one of these pieces of uh, equipment that I use every single hunt, every single day that I'm whitetail hunting. And uh, it, it, it makes me a more efficient hunter, and therefore I can spend less time worrying about my gear and more time focused on the hunt and being aggressive and calculating those uh, those strikes to uh, get myself within shooting distance of a target buck. So uh, lonewolfhuntingproducts.com, go ahead and check it out and uh, enter the discount code NFC19. I think that's it, lone wolf here, lone wolf. Excuse me, 9FC50. 9FC50. And what this does is it allows you to save $50 off of all orders over 200 bucks, right? So you buy a tree stand, enter that discount code, and you're going to save $50. That's a pretty significant discount. Take advantage of that um, and become a better hunter. So there's that lone wolf tree stands. Other than that, let's get into today's episode with Sam Soholt. Three, two, one. All right, on the podcast with me today, Mr. Sam Soholt. Sam, thanks for coming on, man. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I've been wanting to uh, get you on uh, for a while now, and it's just never really clicked until now. And uh, so, man, I, I just really want to say thank you uh, for, for taking time out of your day to do this. Yeah, not a problem. And, uh, you know, apologize for it not working in the past, but if it's during hunting season, it's typically pretty tough. <laughs> That's a fact. I have to do a lot of rescheduling myself, not in just the the Sportsman's Nation Nine Finger Chronicles side of things, but the the life side of things where it's like, I promised a buddy, maybe I'd go get a beer with him. This buddy doesn't hunt, let's say, and oh, a cold front comes through. So, well, I got priorities during hunting season. So <laughs> I'm going, I'm going hunting. <laughs> That's right. And they, all my buddies understand. So, um, yep. Yep. So this is just going to be a straight up BS session today because uh, um, you've been on a variety of other podcasts in the past and talked about the the bus build and and the van and and stuff like that. But I kind of want to take it from a different angle uh, today. And I want to ask you, um, where where were you born and what was it like growing up in that place? Sure. Uh, So I was born uh, originally in Aberdeen, South Dakota. And then, um, I was super young and we actually moved to Sioux Falls. So I grew up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, the very Southeast corner. Okay. And then, uh, yeah. And then did that, I mean, did you come from an outdoors family? Yes. Yeah. So I, uh, like, I mean, it, it, it was almost like I didn't have a choice. Um, yeah. my dad, my dad grew up in Wisconsin. He was, uh, you know, grew up hunting his whole life. His dad hunted um, and when we were, you know, starting to get a little bit older and kind of realize what our dad was up to, he was, when we were younger, he did a lot of archery hunting and then, uh, kind of gave that up. And we started, um, like started doing more bird hunting cause you could have it be more of a, a family activity. And as soon as we were old enough to walk field, we were out chasing pheasants and sitting in a duck blind and, um, just spending time outdoors. So yeah, it's been from as long as I can remember. I've been outside doing some type of hunting activity. Yeah. Now, did was your dad the kind of guy who eased you in to uh, whatever it is that you were doing? Or did he say, all right, this is how we do it. You get out there, the grass is, you know, up to your chin and you're walking, trying to push pheasants that way. Or did he take it easy on you? Uh, you know, like uh, we, we went pretty hard. Um, so even, you know, way before I could shoot, we were walking fields, um, you know, and I just remember, you know, some of my earliest memories of hunting or walking uh, cornfields when I was too young to shoot. And like, you know, I'm whatever at that point, I don't know how remember how tall I was, but just, I remember looking just way up at the tops of the corn stalks <laughs> and then just listening for my dad's voice. And then, you know, just following that row um, until the end and trying to walk through CRP and stuff and having short little legs, trying to get through all that brush. Um, I, I was pretty burnt out on pheasant hunting by the time I could even hunt pheasants. <laughs> um, so yeah, we went, we went pretty hard. I'm sure he eased me into it more than I remember, 
Yeah. Um, but what I remember was, you know, really getting after it right away. Yeah. Well, and, and do you think that was a, a a good thing for you that kind of helped build the foundation to where you are today? Or did you kind of, did, did that, that, uh, I don't know if you pushed you a little bit, did that stray you away in later years? No, I think, I think it, I think it definitely helped, um, being pushed into it a little bit like that simply because, uh, like on the pheasant side, you know, it's, it was a little bit different cause he, you know, knew farmers and knew people that we could hunt on and the pheasant hunting was good. But when we started, uh, duck hunting, it, we were all learning together, like my dad my older brother and myself. And so like, we all sucked at it to begin with. Yeah. And so it was fun. Uh, you know, like we went really hard, but a lot of times we weren't all that successful. And then as we learned and got better at it and, you know, had more successful hunts, it was like we were doing it all together and got better together. So, yeah, I think, you know, being pushed into a little bit harder and kind of like realizing some failure right away and not having, you know, just fish, not just fishing in the good hole, yeah. uh, I think helped a lot for in, in future years. Yeah. So let me ask you this. How, how old were you when all of this kind of took place? You mentioned that you were burnt out before you could even hunt but did you then start hunting pheasants before ducks or was it all kind of at the same time i think um we started hunting pheasants before ducks and when i started walking fields i think i was five maybe six years old okay all right yeah so so did did pheasant hunting at that point interest you at all like the you know, obviously we have our passions today as older men who, uh, you know, have made their own decisions and, and, you know, their own path in life. But before that, um, was pheasant hunting something that interested you and and kept your attention or was it on something else? Uh, it was on something else. Yeah. Pheasant hunting was a cool activity that I did with family, Yeah, but I, I didn't personally at that time really see the, like the allure to it. It wasn't until I think I was I think I was 10 when I went on my first duck hunt. I was just tagged along with my older brother. And then uh, by when I, when I was 12, we were fully into waterfowl hunting and getting after it. But going like that was really the first time that I had like a passion for a certain type of hunting. Yeah. So what was it back then about duck hunting that really just hooked you? I think it was like all the strategy, um, you know, switching from pheasants to waterfowl like you know you're walking pheasants you're walking fields you're thick cover that type of thing just pushing birds and then you know when you go to duck hunting it's the it's the decoys and the calling and the spread and the the hide and the you know everything that goes along with it and i think i liked that type of puzzle uh trying to figure that out more than i did just pushing um fields and shelter belts and and what have you yeah you were basically a dog at that point right yeah pretty much yeah (laughs) So, um, then, you know, as you guys, you know, you mentioned that you kind of all suck together uh, up front, but as you started to, um, I guess, get better at duck hunting as a family, did, did things become more fun when, you know, you guys were able to enjoy that success? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and like, helping each other scouting and finding different stuff and places to hunt. And then, you know, knowing that you're going to go in there and probably have a good hunt and then going in and actually having a good hunt. It just, yeah, it just made it, it just kept getting better. Um, you know, all the way up into the point when my bro- older brother went to college cause he wanted to learn how to elk hunt. Uh, it just seems like a strange thing to say, but he chose his, uh, college destination, wanted to learn how to call elk and kill elk. And, um, my dad and I hunted together, all the way through my high school. And then I chose my college based on waterfowl hunting and went to North Dakota state. And so it just, we just kept duck hunting all the way through and it, yeah, it just, it just kept getting better. Gotcha. So at throughout that process, I mean, were, were you just uh, a, a strictly a waterfowl hunter at that point, or when did you start to get into whitetails or other big game? Yeah, I was basically a strictly waterfowl hunter. Um, we did have some uh, family connection on some land in South Dakota where every few years we would draw a uh, or put in for a rifle tag and go rifle hunt maybe for a few days. But it was uh, it was definitely not the main focus. And so it wasn't until 
uh, in the fall of 2009, I drove out to Wyoming and um, actually went and hung out with my brother and his buddy on an elk hunt. And up to this point, my Josh, my brother, had kept saying, you need to get a bow, you need to get a bow, you need to start archery hunting, you need to get a, you know. And I was just full on in college duck hunting uh, with all my buddies. <clears throat> well, I went out and hung out on that elk hunt. I basically drove home and bought a bow the next, like when I, <laughs> right after I got home. <laughs> and then, so fall, fall of 2010 uh, was the first year I started archery hunting. And that's when uh, everything kind of shifted to more of the big game side of things and have, uh, you know, pretty much gone hard on that since then. Yeah. So your brother, he's, you know, like big brothers always do hey try this do this try this and uh, it, sometimes it gets you in trouble and sometimes it doesn't right so yep <laughs> so what was it about that elk hunt with your brother that that kind of flipped it for you and said holy man i need to do this well i think like so the very first day we we hiked into this spot and we, you know, kind of waiting for the sun to go down just a little bit for elk to start bugling and heating up. And that very first night, we called in five different bulls and didn't I didn't end up killing one that night, but had five different bulls come in from different directions and bugling and, you know, like these huge animals like coming to a call. And just like we were in elk from the first day to the last day, and it just that, that just stuck with me and the whole thing in the mountains and talking to this giant animal and um you know the everything that went into it like it was like oh okay now i get it um it was like the adrenaline rush on having something that close was just just a little bit different than having birds drop into a hole yeah yeah uh it's like a you know 800 pound bird dropping into a hole yeah right <laughs> right. right so yep. so you you at that point you say man i, I want to do this more you go back and buy a bow um that next year you were out there again trying you know did you did you try whitetail hunting at all before that or were you did you just go straight to elk at that point no so so i i went on that elk hunt i wasn't hunting i was just hanging out and then i went home bought a bow and then i i couldn't afford to like leave school the next year again and go out and, and do another elk hunt so i just started whitetail hunting and that very first year, call it beginner's luck uh, or what, what have you, whatever, but I had no idea what I was doing. I bought a tree stand and like just started hunting, you know, anywhere I thought there might be a deer. Like I wasn't particularly paying attention to the wind all that much. I wasn't really paying attention to access routes, anything. It was just like, oh, I can hang in that tree. Yeah. And yeah. I ended up, uh, as you know, as I got into November, I ended up killing uh, two different bucks that first year. And then I was all kinds of fired up about it, you, you know, and what the first year I shot was this little two by three, um, white tail that, you know, I like walked in there this after one afternoon and set up a ground blind 20 yards from this corner post on a fence and, uh, just happened to have <laughs> a deer walk right down that fence line and shot him at 20 yards. And then 10 days later, I, um, went in one morning and I set up a ground blind again and, and ended up shooting a Pope and young deer, uh, just a week and a half left after I shot the first one. So I was, you know, living on cloud nine for a long time after that first season. Right. So do you remember that first deer that you ever killed with a bow and any of the emotions or the, the moment? Oh yeah. Yeah. The very first deer I killed with a bow was that one that came down the fence line and I'm in this little tiny ground blind and I, I see this thing walk, you know, working its way down the fence. And so I grabbed my bow and I was, I was shaking so bad, I was shaking so bad, breathing so hard that at 20 yards, that deer just like stopped and was like staring at me. And luckily it was a, you know, a little forky cause you know, you don't get away with that stuff. And I get drawn back and I'm shaking and I'm shaking and I, I shoot and he whirls and uh, catches the arrow and he, you know, takes off and runs away. And I was out like the front window of the blind was open and I was out of the blind window. Like most of my, <laughs> I was standing, like I, like the blind was pushed out of the way. I'm like standing up trying to see where I shot this thing. At this point I didn't have binoculars, rangefinder, nothing. I just like paced off 20 yards from the fence post and 
happened to get a shot right there. But it was just, um, yeah, like the amount of adrenaline that was going through my body on that first deer was like nothing I've ever experienced, you know, before or since. Yeah. And then from there, what, what was your progression in bow hunting? Like, I mean, did you say to yourself, Hey man, I just want to kill any animal that walks by or did it go to antlers? Did it go to age? Did it go to maturity? Like how did that progression look for you? Yeah. Uh, so, so after those first two deer, I was, I was all excited and I started cold calling hunting shows, um, like outdoor companies, you name it, Any, anyone I could find an email for or a phone number, I was either emailing or calling and ended up getting in touch with uh, Bill Winky down at Midwest Whitetail and um, went down over Christmas break and got hired as an intern. And so I went from, you know, being basically brand new to hunting whitetails to then being jammed into this wealth of knowledge, which is that at Midwest Whitetail and learning, you know, more in a single fall than, you know, I probably could have on my own in, in a decade. Yeah. And so, um, you know, my, my progression to what I am chasing, like changed fairly quickly. And it went from, Oh, I'm going to, you know, like my first year is I'm going to kill anything, you know, second year just happened to get lucky on a bigger buck. And then when I started working at Midwest Whitetail, like the focus was really on maturity and age. And so that's kind of what's always stuck with in my head is trying to shoot something a little bit older. Yeah. So did you ever run into problems with that? Because I, I did the same thing, right? And I tell the story all the time on, on this podcast, but, you know, I, I had this Moultrie trail camera. It was probably the size of a VCR that I hung out, out on this tree. And I got some pictures of a good buck on there i thought it was a good buck i showed the farmer and i'm just like hey man check this buck out it's huge you know it's huge he's like no that's not that's not a big deer you shouldn't shoot that deer you should let it get older and shoot the other big ones that are around here and i was just like okay so i i skipped <laughs> i skipped this whole this whole portion of my of what i would consider a progression that every hunter kind of needs to go through and that's the brown it's down mentality because killing animals will make you better in the moment of truth that you know that's that's for sure that's my kind of thought process on it so with you kind of getting into that this mindset of hey now i gotta kill mature big antler deer you know um only after shooting two bucks did you ever make mistakes because you did get fired up when you did have those encounters with those big deer um I'm trying to think, I mean, yes, but like my, like I'm, uh, I probably don't wait as long as most people that are looking for a quote unquote mature deer. Yeah. Um, like my, my personal rule is like, I try to, if I'm on public land and a really good three-year-old walks by, like it's, it's basically impossible for me not to shoot it. Yeah. Um, you're <laughs> most years, if, if, I, if I have a good three-year-old walk by on public, I'm, I'm slinging an arrow. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm trying to think like if I ever got like way too caught up in the age game, I guess, I guess my mentality towards it is like, I've, I haven't, I haven't hunted enough or killed enough animals to be that picky. Yeah. And so, you know, like I'm always pursuing, you know, obviously always pursuing bigger deer and older deer, but I'm not going to, I'm probably not going to pass up a good opportunity if it, if, you know, if it lends itself to me. Yeah. Okay. So out of curiosity, then you, you, you go get a job for Midwest Whitetails with Bill Winky. Um, did you have any media videography photography experience before that point? Uh, I didn't have much on, on the photo side of things, but I had, I had kind of grown up being interested in filming uh, and video production. And so, you know, I had made you know, snowboarding and wakeboarding movies with my buddies growing up and, um, had, had filmed some of our hunts, um, had never really edited much together on the, on the hunting side of things, but I did have at least a little bit of experience, um, with the camera or, you know, in the, in editing, um, but not a ton. I certainly learned uh, a lot in a very short period of time that, that fall down there. Okay. And, you know, when it was your time, you know, you were uh what was your title there 
So I was a producer okay. uh, of a couple of a couple of the at that time they did state shows, and so I was the producer editor of the Michigan show, and then I also helped produce the uh, Minnesota show. Okay. Um, yeah. So that was my title. So I was just basically kind of corralling pro staff and making sure that they were sending in footage from their different hunts that we could then edit together into, into shows. Gotcha. Um, so I think between, yeah, between Michigan and Minnesota, I was, you know, talking to whatever 40 or 50 people every week, trying to make sure, or just getting updates and, and trying to get footage from them, um, along the way, but, and then editing weekly shows for Michigan and then, um, helping with the Minnesota show when I needed to. Right. So yep. leaving that experience, what did you take away from whether it's the business side or the hunting side? What were some big takeaways from that experience? Uh, the, <laughs> the biggest takeaway, I think, at first was I didn't I didn't ever really want to have my own hunting show. Yeah. Because um, I saw, you know, you get to see the it looks glamorous from the outside. You know, you watch the, the outdoor channel or the sportsman's channel and you see these people that are you know, hunting big deer and doing all this stuff. Well, you you get into the back end of that and the amount of time, effort and money that it takes to produce one of those shows is unreal. And, you know, for anybody who's not, um, who doesn't understand how those shows work. So most network television, the network pays the pays people to create content so they can fill the slots. Well, it's backwards on the outdoor channel, sportsman's channel, pursuit channel, if you want to have a hunting show, you actually pay for your airtime. And I think back in 2010 uh, or 2011, rather, it was, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to have a 13 week uh, series on the channel. Yeah. And so, I mean, it was like 80,000 for the sportsman's channel and, you know, a few hundred thousand for the outdoor channel, just because of how much bigger the network was. Um, so it costs a ton of money. And most of that comes through sponsorship dollars and that type of thing, but it's, it's a, uh, it's a very hard way to make a living. And so that was one of the biggest takeaways I had, but the amount of like media experience and just content creation experience that I got in whatever, six months um, was invaluable. I mean, it's un- unbelievable what that allowed me to do and, and know going forward from that experience. Right. So how old were you at this point? I was 20, Four turned twenty four down there in Albia. Okay, so you're you're twenty four. You and and that's about the time that you split away and uh, your your internship ended. Yes. Okay. Yep. So at twenty four, you know now you're kind of you know I'm assuming you're at some kind of crossroads where you're like, do I have to go get a, a real job or do I follow this road down? What did what did that crossroad look like for you? Well, I. I was, I was kind of lucky because Josh, again, uh, he, him and his business partner, the same two, two guys that I had elk hunted with, uh, so they started a store in Fort Collins, Colorado called Gannett Ridge Hunting Equipment, uh, which was a backcountry hunting gear store and archery pro shop. And um, my sister was going to school out in Fort Collins at the time. My brother owned this hunting shop, and I really had nowhere to go. You know, I was finished with college. I'd finished with the internship and so made the decision to uh, move out to Fort Collins and moved in with Josh and my sister-in-law um, in their apartment and kind of just started working at the store. And so I had this like little, you know, basically kind of landing pad out there in Colorado to go and figure out uh, what I wanted to do next. But what ended up happening was I, you know, kind of moved into a role where I was helping with the shop as well as creating uh, YouTube content, mostly gear overview type stuff uh, for their store and uh, building their YouTube channel presence and, and creating video content that way. Um, so did that for roughly a year and then decided to uh, take on a different job, which was being a sales rep in, you know, still in the hunting industry, but doing something a little bit different than working at the store. And that's what took me to uh, eventually took me to Montana and became a sales rep for, oh, not quite a year because um, I kind of jumped. I was at Gannett Ridge and I took the sales rep job and then I randomly I was in the Starbucks inside of a Safeway and I randomly met a guy who uh, needed a second shooter on a bear hunt in Alaska. And after I was I dove right back into all the video production stuff. Gotcha. Out of curiosity, what um, what? company were you doing sales for 
So the sales rep agency is Elite Outdoor Sports Marketing. Okay. Um, and they're actually, they at that time, we were just in the 13 Western states. And now um, that agency is a national uh, sales rep agency. Okay. So fate kind of collides with your passion at a coffee shop. And this guy's like, hey, you want to you wanna film a bear hunt, right? And, and yeah. so yeah. is that... Is that like a big moment right there that kind of led huge. you down? Yeah, huge moment. Because at that time, uh, you know, I was a sales rep getting paid on commission. And the it takes a while to get that pipeline opened up. So I had moved to Montana, done all this stuff, traveled to do all these sales, and was uh, more than low on money. And so this opportunity, you know, this door opens to go and have a day rate uh, filming a brown bear hunt in Alaska. And it was like, I couldn't say yes fast enough. Right. And uh, went up, went up to Alaska and filmed that brown bear hunt. And through that hunt, uh, was able to make another connection um, with the show Coast Guard Alaska and ended up, they ended up that they needed a a shooter. Um, They'd had a guy that had, you know, quit or left or whatever. And they were looking for another shooter for the show. And I just happened to be available. And, um, about, I don't know, two months after I had filmed that bear hunt, I was on my way to Kodiak, uh, to film for the coast guard, Alaska series on the weather channel. And I was flying around in Jayhawks and going on search and rescues. And um, it just kind of like, it was, it was definitely a huge moment just, you know, being in the right spot, right time and starting a conversation with a guy uh, that just happened to be sitting next to me. That's crazy. That is crazy. So you, you go up to Alaska, you film the brown bear hunt, and then was that Coast Guard show also in Alaska? Yes. Yep. So that was up on Kodiak Island. All right. So at this point in my, if I was in your shoes, I would have been like, dude, I'm a badass. Like, like <laughs> I am flying around in helicopters. I'm filming TV shows. Like, like was, was with all you know, knowing what you know now was that moment in your life kind of like, dude, I've made it. Like, this is, this is what I want to do. This is like, were you solidified that being a, some kind of content creator or film production or making short, you know, uh, uh, short films and stuff like that. Did you know at that time that this is what Sam Soholt needed and wanted to do with his life? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, obviously it felt pretty damn cool to be yeah. <laughs> ripping around in helicopters and doing all this stuff. And, um, you know, you, you just kind of like every once in a while, you just stop and kind of look at, at what you're up to. And it uh, it all felt pretty incredible. And it was, it was an amazing experience. And it definitely, um, it definitely solidified in my mind that I was on the right path. Yeah. And regardless of where that path ended up taking me, I knew that, you know, saying yes to these opportunities like this was what I needed to be doing. Um, and so it was nice to kind of have that affirmation on, you know, like, okay, you made this decision and that was good. And you made this decision and that was good. And you're being rewarded for saying yes to these opportunities that are presenting themselves and not just, uh, you know, avoiding them because it might be nerve wracking or, you know, in some cases terrifying. Um, but yeah, definitely, it definitely felt like I was uh, on the right path at that moment. And yeah. it just kind of snowballed from there. You know, it was, it was, it was fun to realize that one connection would lead to the next and just watching those doors open as you allowed them to, you know, open up in front of you. Yeah. Um, I think you half the battle is just uh, knowing what's an opportunity and what's not. So uh, share, share us a story of maybe a hairy situation as a cameraman on this Coast Guard show? Sure. Um, So I went on, I got kind of lucky and unlucky. So most of the search and rescues I went on, um, we would start the flight, we'd get going and then either get called off or, or somebody would be found or, you know, or whatever it was. But there was one night there, a uh, SOS uh, signal was going off and they didn't exactly know where it was coming from. So we were basically going to go fly a grid pattern over this big bay. And uh, we, uh, the, the pager goes off and it's just a nasty day. And if anybody listening has, you know, been on Kodiak or been up in Alaska, you, you know that it like can rain harder than you've ever seen and be so windy at the same time, you know, and everybody's just like living through it because it's like a normal day. 
but it was just a, a nasty, nasty day. And the pager goes off and I, we fly down to the base. I throw the, the uh, dry suit on and run out to the helicopter and get set up. And, uh, the uh, flight mechanic comes out and he's like, how long you been flying with us? And this, this was in, I think September at some point I was like, oh, since July. And he's like, all right. And he throws me a trash bag and he goes, you're going to want to keep this close to you. It's going to be bumpy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we get, we get all loaded up. We go through the pre-flight checklist. We take off. And we're flying everything smooth and it's, you know, it's pouring rain and windy, but it's the, the, the flight doesn't feel too bad. And we're kind of starting to do this grid pattern over this bay. And the pilot, you know, he's like, Hey, look at guys, look out the window. Like you see the, that water blowing up off the ocean, like in these big, you know, spirals and all of a sudden, you know, yeah. And uh, he's like, well, it takes, you know, 55 knots of wind uh, to do that. And like, so we're going to try to avoid some of those gusts and, and uh, have a little bit smoother ride. Well, he knows sooner than says that than the entire helicopter just like twists and then drops. Oof. I mean, and not direct, not just drops like a little bit, like, like drops, I don't know, 50, hundred feet, like instantly. And, um, I look back and, you know, the rescue swimmers back there with his legs crossed, eating gushers and like, <laughs> nobody, 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 nobody's doing anything. And I was like, okay. So we climb back up, climb back up. And then we get another hit of wind and just drop. And, uh, like still nobody's like reacting and whatever. I'm like, all right, good, good stuff. And, um, like if they're calm, I'm calm. So we fly around for a while. Don't find the beacon noise. Um, they think it was just like an accidental, like, you know, either something battery died or shorted out or whatever. So we land to fuel up and uh, the weather had gotten a little bit nicer at this point. We're all standing outside the helicopter waiting for fuel. And the rescue swimmer, the guy who was back there, like nonchalantly, like just mowing down gushers was like, oh man, I thought we were going in for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, you know, so then at that point, I'm like, what? Like, you know, you know, I was like, I was looking around, not a single person had any look of fear at all on their face. So, like, yeah, you just, you know, kind of got to roll with it. <laughs> like, well, if we're going to die, we're going to die, right? right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Man. So, 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 but I've been in, like, I can remember flying through some pretty nasty storms. Uh, I can remember one time I was flying west out of Denver and, um, we must have hit some real thin air or something, and the whole plane just dropped, right? And I, yep. I about shit my pants. I'll be honest with you. I was like, mm-hmm. you know, you have that internal moment where inside you're going, we're going to die. And on the outside, you're like, hey, <laughs> I'm tough. Can't let my wife see me, you know, weak <laughs> like this, right? So Can't let anybody else see that I'm freaking out. Right. So, so when you said, oh, everybody's calm, but were you calm in that moment? Yeah, I, I, I think I faked it pretty well. I certainly <laughs> on the on the inside, I was certainly not super calm. Right, right, okay. Well, you're still yeah. here today, so that's a good thing, right? That's right. Yeah, that's I survived, and you know, it it, uh, it was funny because after flying around on the helicopters and and jumping from base to base on a C-130, and like you know, like you just fly through a bunch of nasty air and all the small planes, all the. Um, uh, after the Coast Guard show was done, I was filming for a History Channel show called The Hunt, and so I was bouncing around in Super Cubs and stuff. And I mean, the, you know, you go through turbulence like crazy. And for a while, like you know, you get on a commercial flight, and uh, there'd be like a few bumps or whatever, and you'd hear people like, <gasps> you know, like gasp, like that <laughs> stuff. And you just like in that moment, you're like, oh, this is it's just not that big of a deal. Like you're on this huge plane that's probably going to keep flying. And, um, you know, there's no reason to freak out. But yeah. Uh, it's amazing how quickly you become acclimated to uh, kind of nasty flying. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you bounce, you go from TV show to TV show. Um, it, was that your life for a while, just basically a camera guy for hire? Well, so that's uh, kind of where I thought I w- it was going. And uh, what what ended up happening was, so at the same time that I was, you know, filming these TV shows, I had a, I had picked up a, a DSLR and was shooting photos just for myself. And, um, the, the, when I was filming the bear hunting show on, on Kodiak as well, um, I was the very last trip that I did was a 12 day trip. Um, and it was filming, but I was shooting photos at the same time. Cause there's only so much footage you can take of somebody like glassing the side hill on right. Kodiak. Right. And so I was shooting photos and 
hanging out in camp with these two guys, um, super, super awesome guys on the hunt, both worked in the hunting industry. And at the end of the trip, I gave them, you know, this little flash drive with, it was, I don't know, it was like four or 500 photos that I'd taken during the trip. And I was like, Hey, you know, just have these, you know, whatever. And well, the one guy who was on the trip that had tagged along with his buddy happened to be a PR guy for Remington firearms. And he liked my style of photos. And he's like, Hey, um, do you ever do photography like for work? And I was like, I haven't yet, but I'm, you know, definitely open to it. And so like a month after that, I was down in Arizona at uh, um, gun site, um, which is a kind of a, a, whatever, like one of the best like shooting ranges in the nation and for training. And I was shooting um, photos of all of the writers and editors of all these shooting magazines um, at a new product seminar for Remington. So I, I had fully intended on continuing down the path of, you know, working for these big national shows because uh, the money was good. You got to do all these cool experiences. But what ended up happening is I kind of dove like, you know, head first into the photography side of things and getting to know all of these writers and editors that were within the space. Like I just kind of kept growing my presence on the photography side and it kept like most people start in photography and then start filming. And for me, it was the opposite. I just kept doing more and more uh, photo work rather than the, the film stuff. Yeah. So at this point, did you have a quote unquote residence? Uh, were you still kind of bumming it at your brother's place or did you no, I, I, move around? Yeah, I did actually have a residence. I, I, when I moved to Montana for that sales rep job, I had uh, some buddies, uh, one buddy from college and a couple of buddies he knew we'd all moved into a house um, in Bozeman and, um, we're living together. And then I went up to Kodiak and, um, yeah, at that point I was still a Montana resident. Gotcha. Okay. But <laughs> yeah. you weren't home very often from the sounds of it. No, no, I, uh, was not home. I, you know, there was a stretch there for about six years where, um, I don't know if I was ever in one spot for more than two weeks at a time. Yeah, man, that's crazy. Yeah. And, uh, single this whole time? Uh, nope. Uh, well, at that point in time, I was single. Okay. Um, but yep, I, it wasn't super long after the Kodiak trips that I met my now wife and we, uh, we started dating and, but you know, from the get go, I was gone all the time. So fortunately she, uh, um, accepted that as part of my, as part of my life. And, uh, yeah, now we're, now we're married for a little over a year. And, uh, I have uh, been able to travel just slightly less where I can be home a little bit more. Yeah. So you kind of go from film to photography, um, while you're gone doing all these different jobs, where does your personal time and your passion to be an outdoorsman and, and duck hunt and, and bow hunt? I mean, were you able to still do those things or did you sacrifice that for the career? So for a little while, I sacrificed personal days um, in the field to, you know, I was following people around a lot. So I was, you know, I was out hunting a lot, but it was always with somebody else or on their hunt. Um, and that, that went on for a couple of years. Um, and then I kind of had it in my mind that I, I wanted to get back to being able to hunt, you know, as much as possible for myself, because that's why I got into it in the first place. You know, a camera uh, you know, a lot of people will ask, would you rather hunt or shoot photos? And it's always, I'd always rather be the tag holder. Um, it's just, can't, you know, photography allows me to do more of that. And so what I started to do was transition away from being the camera guy all the time and started producing photos and, you know, small video clips or whatever I needed to on my own personal hunts. And so I could transition more into time on all of my own you know, passions and my own, the old, my own things that I wanted to do. Um, and fortunately, like a lot of the clients that I work with and companies in the industry were, were open to that as long as I was producing all of the, the content that I needed to. So, um, yeah, definitely took a little while to kind of get that rolling, but, um, it was, I was glad I made the decision to transition from always a camera guy to, uh, being able to do my own stuff. Yeah. And was, are you still doing that today or are you able to have this work mix like this, this work, um, pleasure mix where you're able to do your own thing, create your own content, but the content that you're creating for yourself, you can also 
share with other companies and make money that way. Yep, exactly. Okay. That's exactly how I'm rolling it. All yep. right, cool, man. Well, I tell you what, that's a lot of people's dreams, man. So kudos to you for uh, having the the wherewithal and the, and the vision to make that happen, man, because uh, there's a lot of people out there who want to do it, but they get stuck somewhere along the way. Yeah. And it's totally understandable. Um, you know, it's, uh, it just, it, it took, um, you know, definitely some luck, but it just took a lot of time and effort to, uh, kind of cultivate the life that I wanted to live. Um, and fortunately I've had, you know, people that were willing to, you know, support me in what I'm doing as well as encourage me to continue down the path that I've been on. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Have, there, there comes a time because I, I used to sell film, right? And it cost me a booner. Yep. It, it cost me a booner one year, and now I, yep. now I no longer sell film because I, I, I'd rather have that deer on my wall than video of him, you know, me putting a shitty shot on him. So, have yeah. you ever had to make decisions like that? Where, hey man, I am a content creator. I have to get the shot on. Uh, you know, I, I do this for a living, and then a big one pops out and you have to make the decision. Do I shoot the big one or do I get it on film? Have you ever had like any moments like that where you've really had to make a decision of what you're going to do? Uh, not, uh, not for my personal stuff. Um, you know, I've fortunately I've only ever been like locked into that when I'm, when I'm filming for somebody else. Yeah. Um, you know, even when I've, even when I've hired buddies and stuff to film some of my stuff, I have, made it a, I've made it clear to them that like the goal is to get the kill on film, but I'm never going to pass up an opportunity because I'm doing what I love and I'll, I'll let some, I'll, I'll sacrifice uh, some clips of footage. If, as long as I'm still able to tell the whole story, yeah. it's not, uh, I, my, I personally don't feel like the kill shot is everything and it's uh it's way more about everything else that goes into it. Yeah, absolutely. So with that said, then have you ever been in a position where you had to call the hunter off because you didn't have the, the animal in uh, the frame? Yep. Yep. A couple of times. Um, fortunately, I mean, the, the times that it's happened, it's mostly just been making them hold off for a few seconds or, uh-huh. you know, a minute or whatever. Um, I, I haven't had to call anybody off completely off of, off the trigger, um, because we didn't get the shot. So gotcha. I've been, been lucky there. I guess yep. I, I bet you that's kind of a stressful moment. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. And it, uh, I think it, as long as for me, as long as, uh, you know, I'm filming somebody that I, I get along with and we communicate well, it's never been a big issue. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I could see that it would get very hairy and very quickly if you're not, uh, you know, both on the same page. Yeah, I feel you. All right. So, you know, now you, we all know what you do for a living, right? Um, where, yeah. where did this passion for public lands come from? Um, so it, it stemmed from like me being completely naive about it <laughs> for a long time. Right. I, you know, like growing up, I never, nobody talked about, I mean, there was some talk of conservation, but it wasn't like it is today. Like it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't a word you hear all the time, uh, public land access, you take it for granted. Uh, you know, you don't understand kind of how the money works and how we have access to those types of things. So it wasn't, it wasn't until, you know, 2015, early 2016, uh, when there was potential for, us to lose our public lands that I started to do more research on it and start to understand uh, how that was working. And like the, the term land transfer, like how that was being used as a, as a marketing tool um, as a way to fast track land to being sold off. And so the passion came from, I, I had grown up utilizing public land, uh, reaping the benefits of conservation and having this entire lifestyle based on these things without even really knowing it. Yeah. And so as I started, as I started to learn more about, you know, the conservation tools that we have in this country, North American wild uh, model of uh, wildlife conservation, um, all of these different things that went into it, I was like, man, I've, basically my, my whole livelihood is based on these principles. And I, it just didn't sit right with me to lose that. And not only, I mean, selfishly for me, but like 
the thought of having future generations not be able to have the same opportunities and experiences that I have had, uh, that's what really stuck with me. And it was like, how do we, how do we, what can I do to help protect this for future generations? And so that's when the, the, you know, the bus itself was not directly correlated to that feeling. The bus idea had been around for a while, but then it all kind of all clicked at the right time of when I was looking at buying the public land bus and the message that I wanted to use it for uh, all just lined up at the right time. And next thing you know, I own a 40 feet, a rolling giant yellow school bus. <laughs> and you know, you, uh, would I, would I be accurate if I said, if you want to see that whole story unfold, you can about the bus, you can go to your YouTube channel and check it out. Yep, YouTube channel. I've got a playlist on there um, with a bunch of kind of or a bunch of hunts on the bus, and then there's uh, like a tour of the school bus. And yeah, if it, you know, if you go back in my Instagram feed quite a ways, there's a whole. I did a whole series on the build of the bus. Um, yeah, there's articles and other podcasts and stuff all about that whole project. So yeah. So yep. so what is that message that you're trying to, you know, let the universe hear? Yeah. So basically, since uh, the inception of the public land bus and now the public land van, the entire mission of those projects has been to raise awareness, first of all, raise awareness about how important our public land system is and why we need it. And then secondly, raise money for conservation, public land protection and access to those public lands for everybody. So that's where, you know, the, the, the bus and the van are the billboard and the public land to use the apparel side is a way is a is a vehicle to raise money and give back to the places that have allowed us to make a living yeah yeah so so then what's what's next on that mission right do you just keep going and keep preaching or it does is there a pivot is there a change what's the what's the message moving forward yeah so i think what comes next is uh, yeah i feel like we've done you know, a pretty good job of, of raising awareness and, you know, the, uh, the education that the hunting industry and, and people who hunt the education that people have got over the last four years from all of the organizations that are involved in all this. Uh, it, it's amazing to, to, to have watched the change in just the terminology that people are using, the understanding they have of conservation tools. Um, you know, more people getting involved in conservation efforts. Um, and so I think, what we need to shift into is just continuing to come up with uh, kind of new and creative ideas and ways to help people not only get involved, but to help uh, raise maximum number of dollars. And so the organizations that are lobbying for public lands and protecting public lands every single day, that they have the tools to do what they need to do to continue um, uh, protecting all of those things that we use and love and, and uh, want for our kids and grandkids and their grandkids. Um, yeah. So it's just going to be, uh, you know, continuing to preach the importance, but more, more importantly, uh, shifting into that, like, how do we, how do we get creative around this and, and uh, maybe make conservation a little more sexy than it is because it is not. Yeah, that's a fact. Um, yeah. and, and that's one reason why, um, when they asked me to be on the board of directors for 2% for conservation, I jumped at the chance to, to do it. Um, you are your public land tees, right? 2% for conservation yes. certified. Yes. So yep, what, absolutely. what is it about 2% for conservation that you like? So, uh, I, I got, you know, I kind of got to watch the beginning of it when uh when two percent struck out and they or like and when they started and having um several of the partners that i work with be involved from the very get-go um but it wasn't until i a buddy of mine um his company at early riser coffee co became two percent certified and i called aaron and i was like hey what does this all entail and he's like i'll just get in touch with jared um he'll take care of you and and jared and i had already known each other and so i got in touch and um the the reason i like two percent is because they constantly deflect it's it's kind of weird because you want everybody to know to know about two percent but they constantly deflect any attention on them and they just push it to everybody who's become 
2% certified, whether it be sharing about projects they're working on or yep. promoting this or promoting that or connecting this and connecting that. And it's, it's become this, you know, massive network of, of companies and individuals who are like-minded that could potentially collaborate or could potentially, you know, work together on some project or do match donations. Um, so that's, that's the really cool part about that organization is they're in it to kind of help all ships float, not just, right. you know, promote this or promote that. Yeah. Amen, brother. Because, uh, I think that when you, when you start playing this game of, well, we do, did do more or we do more, then it's not really conservation. It's just bragging at that point. And, right. uh, so yeah. that's why I, I love kind of working with, uh, 2%. Now, you know, we, we've talked about all these things. Now let's get into some good stuff because you are a bow hunter, you are a duck hunter and amongst other things. Do you have a preference these days? Let's say, Hey man, uh, I, I have the opportunity to go on a duck hunt versus an elk hunt or a deer hunt. Like where does your alliance lie? Oh, typically it's a hard, that one's a hard one to answer because my alliance typically lies with depending on what month it is. Right. Um, so August, like I'm focused on chasing an antelope. September, I'm typically focused on chasing elk. Um, this coming year, we just confirmed uh, doing an Alaska moose hunt, and that's going to take up Ooh. the majority of my September. Oh, yeah. Super jacked. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, October, um, I dabble in, it's, it's mostly a mule deer for me and bouncing all over the place. And then November is whitetail for the, at least the first three weeks. And then I shift into birds where it's, you know, I'm, I'm looking to go try to find a good mallard hunt or find a good pheasant hunt or whatever. So I, it's, it's hard for me to, you know, if somebody called me and I had a couple opportunities, it, it would really depend on outside factors. <laughs> like where are yeah. we at in the rut? Where are we at in the migration? Yeah. So, yeah. My foundation is whitetails, right? I'm, I'm from yep. Iowa, one of the greatest states for whitetail hunting. Um, that's where I cut my teeth on the outdoors. I mean, believe it or not, my, my first animal I ever killed was a pheasant and um, nice. with, with my uncle. Um, I did some trapping, but for my foundation is whitetails. And so for you, um, is there a, are, are you just an overall hunting enthusiast or is there one or the other that just gets you fired up for for a while it was uh you know after working at midwest whitetail and stuff i had the, the whitetail game was absolutely ingrained in my in my blood um but I, I i think now more so like i just consider myself an overall hunting enthusiast because yeah. uh actually josh my older brother and i had a conversation about this last week about how it's, it's good, you know, it's good to focus on one thing if that's what you're really passionate about, but I think it makes you a better hunter and in every field, if you're willing to go and and do these new opportunities and do these different hunts and hunt these different species. And I think it makes you more well-rounded and you can also take little bits and pieces from this style of hunting and adopt that and put it into this style of hunting and kind of have a hybrid, um, hybrid way to, to go about the way you hunt everything. Yeah. So I, yeah, I'd say it's just, it kind of ebbs and flows, but I, yeah, it's, it, it'd probably be easy to call me a fanatic, uh, regardless of what I'm, I'm chasing. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense, man. So, um, you mentioned you got some, some, uh, a big moose hunt coming up. That is literally, I have it ingrained on my, my desk here in the office, I have bucket list hunts and moose is in, it's in no order, but moose is one of them. Have you been on a moose hunt before? So I have been on a couple moose hunts. Uh, I was the photographer. So the very first moose hunt I went on was actually the, the, if anybody remembers the Peterson's hunting cover with Joe Rogan on the cover, holding a moose quarter, that was my first moose hunt. I went up there to British Columbia with uh, Rogan and Ben O'Brien, and we um, killed a couple of moose up there. And then I was actually able to go back with the same outfitter on another uh, photograph trip. And but that time I had a tag in my pocket, 
um, but I was up third and I never got to be up to bat. Gotcha. <laughs> so it was, yeah. So I've never been on a hunt, a moose hunt for myself. Um, but this will, this will be the first one and it's been a bucket list for a long time. Yeah. So, um, you've killed mule deer, you've killed antelope, you've killed obviously pheasants and ducks and, and whitetails. Um, you've killed elk. Is there a, a species now that other than moose that really intrigues you that you're starting to maybe buy points for or start plant the planning process for a, a unique or more difficult to access species? Yeah, I think for me, like, uh, I definitely want to go do caribou and yeah. I'd love to go, I'd love to do a mountain goat hunt. Yeah. And then I think, I think once I get, uh, I think once I do a moose hunt and a caribou hunt and a goat hunt, then I'm probably booking a sheep hunt at some point. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and so a lot, you know, there, there's some guys who, you know, I know a lot of whitetail hunters and they have no interest in any other species except whitetails. They want to find or do the food plots and all this stuff for just a big giant whitetail. Um, is there any species that you just say, man, I gotta have, uh, I don't know, a, a, a 350 bull or a 400 bull or a, you know, a, a 200 inch muley or whatever, 90, a 90 inch, uh, antelope. Is there any species where you're just like, man, I, you're focused on that one thing? I think if I had to, I think if I had to pick one, I think like, and I don't even care which implement I use, whether it's a rifle or a bow. Um, but I would love to finally kill a really big mule deer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I tell you what, man. So I've hunted South Dakota now the last two years, uh, this, this 2020, yep. I, I went out twice and I don't know what it is about the Dakotas, man, but I've just fallen in love with it. So I know this is, this is probably a topic for a whole nother uh, podcast, but I might need some pointers on how not to suck <laughs> at mule deer hunting <laughs> out, out in the prairie. The best, the, be the best advice that I could give on open country mule deer hunting is uh, it's, it is very easy to push in too far. Yeah. And, and if like the, yeah, the best thing I've learned is to get to a bubble and then stop. Yeah. And it's, it's going to be slow and painful to do that, <laughs> but you know, there's a percentage of the time where that deer that you're in on, you know, if you're say you get into a hundred yards or 80 yards and then you just stop, you just quit. You don't need to get to that, you know, 30, 40 yard shot. If you just stop, there's a good percentage of the time where they're going to, either stand up from their bed and feed your way or, you know, something's going to happen or they're going to get drugged by you. Um, and I think that's definitely changed. Um, it, it's changed the amount of opportunities that I've had on, on good animals. Yeah. 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 So I, I, I completely, um, I completely uh, agree with everything you just said, but you, you left one thing out where it's, uh, you said, oh, they might feed your way or follow something through. Or what I always did was make the wrong move, get busted by a group of does that I didn't see. They run, and then he runs with those does the opposite direction. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's going to happen a pretty solid percentage of the time, too. <laughs> right. So... <laughs> Yeah, no, I've uh, I've done I've done a lot of that as well. So, um, yeah, this year, uh, yeah, uh, we could we could talk about yeah. spot stock mule deer hunting for a long time. But I've uh, over the increasingly I've spent a, a lot of time out in western North Dakota in the Badlands and uh, have fallen I've fallen in love with that. Just the topography and the uh, just the the different access and the ways you know it's it's a yeah. it's a strange place to hunt because of all of the oil. Um, uh, manufacturing and drilling and everything like that, but it's uh, it's one of the one of the coolest places I've ever spent time. Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, I will tell you what, Sam, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on and chit chat with us, BS with us here on the show. So thank you very much, and let me say good luck on your twenty twenty one season, man. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, and uh, same to you. Looking forward to following along with everything you do, and and hopefully we'll cross paths at some point. 
And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode in the books. Huge shout out to Sam. I know he has a very busy schedule. So thank you for taking time out of your schedule to hop on and uh, chit chat with me. Other than that, Huge shout out to all the partners of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, Vortex Optics, Ozonics, Wasp, Lone Wolf, and the Average Conservationist. Please go out and support the companies that support this podcast. It just It's full circle, right? You support them, they support me, and I continue to uh, put out this free, awesome content for you. Uh, I think that's it. Be sure to follow along on Instagram and Facebook. Be sure to subscribe to the Sportsman's Nation feeds and the Nine Finger Chronicles feed. And uh, other than that, I think we're good to go. Be safe. Have fun. Go enjoy Mother Nature. And we'll talk to you next time.